So these past three weeks have been building up to today. And we've used this Advent season to help us prepare for Christmas by examining the candles on the Advent wreath, even when they won't stay lit. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at the candle of the Advent wreath that represents promise. And we looked at how the prophets of God anticipated the birth of Jesus and the promise of his birth all throughout Old Testament scriptures. Second week, we looked at the candle of hope. Last week, we looked at the pink candle of joy that represents the joy we talked about specifically in Mary's song of joy that she sang when she found out that she was pregnant with baby Jesus. And we discussed how God gives us a joy that isn't based on circumstances. Because the true joy, real joy, comes from God's grace and not because of anything from our own efforts, not because of anything that we do, or even how we feel on any given day. And today, now this fourth Sunday of Advent, we look at the final candle on the Advent wreath, which is the candle of love. And we examine how God's compassion for us has been the driving force behind the gift of Jesus and his birth in Bethlehem as God's ultimate gift of love. And this time of year, you and I give and receive a lot of gifts, don't we? I've seen you guys out at Walmart shopping in an effort to express love to each other. And you know, as a matter of fact, as a church family, we've received a pretty special gift this year. Our dear brother Marshall made and donated a, a manger building for our nativity scene. If you haven't seen it, you guys should take a look at it. Now, those, that's, a, that's a pretty good picture of it. The ceramic pieces have been here for years, but as far as I know, we've never had an actual stable to go with it. But it makes a perfect prop for the message today. So if you have a chance, look at it after the service. And I want you to look, when you look at it, I want you to think for a minute about the nativity scenes that you've probably seen all around this year, that you always see at Christmas. Maybe even one that you have set up in your own home. And they're pretty much the same, right? They usually feature shepherds and wise men and barnyard animals. But at the center of the scene, we always see Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus lying in that manger. And I'd like to use that scene as a backdrop to describe to you the love that motivated the giving of God's precious son at Christmas. Because the stable in Bethlehem tells us a lot about the love of God. And we're going to look at that in a very familiar passage in Luke chapter 2. This is what he writes. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Pretty familiar passage, right? We've heard the story so often and we hold it in such high regard that it's easy to forget the real world problems that the Holy Family faced that first night. As Jesus is born to an unwed couple, having their very first child, with no help from family, no benefit of medical advice, in a backwater town, and they have to spend their very first night as a family in an animal stall. Think about that. I mean, just think of the tension in the stable that night. 
Right? First of all, Mary and Joseph are only betrothed. They're not yet married. But Mary was pregnant. Now, we're told in the Gospels, of course, that Mary was a virgin, that the child in her womb was the conception of God, the Holy Spirit, that the infant to be born would be the most unique child in all of history, that he would be God and man all at once. But who would have believed Mary and Joseph when they told the story and tried to explain how she became pregnant? Can you imagine telling that story? The people in her hometown would have been shocked at this young couple. And evidently they were ostracized from the community for their apparent sins because we don't see any of Joseph's extended family opening up their homes for the night. Right? I mean, this is where his family is from. Surely there was a distant relative or a a third or fourth cousin they could have boarded with, but instead they end up spending the night in a stable. A stable. What a strange place for a king to be born. God could have arranged for Jesus to be born anywhere. But he chose that stable. Now, when you and I think of a baby being born, we think of the sterile confines of a hospital, right? Or maybe even for some older folks, at least the comfort of the family home. I know my dad was born at home as a place for a baby to arrive, but not a stable. Not a stable. It's a lay down a newborn baby, fresh from the pains of delivery, with its only resting place, a feeding trough that was still damp with the saliva of animals. Can you picture that? Really think about it. Our Jesus had always lived in a perfect environment, encircled by perfect love and absolute purity and perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's always lived in total freedom with no restrictions or restraints. He'd always been all-powerful, but now he limited himself to the body of a vulnerable infant baby, a baby boy born in a dirty barn. He wrapped himself in human flesh so that he could live and die to take our place in judgment. And he went through all of that just because he loves you. Just because he loves me. Here's how the Bible describes it. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though he, meaning Jesus, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. You see, our Lord Jesus relinquished his dignity, but not his deity. He swaddled his glory and he hid it inside his humanity. He surrendered his riches and allowed himself to be born in a humble stable. He restrained all of his unlimited power as he came to us in human form. And he humbled himself even to the point of dying a horrendous death on the cross. And think about it like this. Jesus, because of his great love for us, put all of his glory on hold to enter into the world with all of God's limitless power and love compressed into the form of one of us. And when that first cry was heard at the stable in Bethlehem, at that moment he came into the care of Mary and Joseph as a wrinkled, blood-covered baby boy. And at that moment the universe reached a turning point. For the very first time, the God and creator of all the universe, who before had only been heard by his people, could now be seen and touched. All that he was as God now occupied human flesh, approachable, though, available now, and vulnerable. And on that night in the stable, Mary and Joseph were filled with love for their baby as any new parents are, but they could hardly imagine how much that baby loved them. 
and how much that baby loved us. And that love for us would be revealed most dramatically when as a grown man he was brutally nailed to the cross. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. I'm sorry, John is what I meant to say. 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 9. He writes, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You know, and there's an amazing truth in those verses, and that is that God initiated the relationship with us. God initiated that relationship with us. And that's exactly the opposite of what religion teaches, isn't it? Religion starts with the assumption that we must initiate the relationship with the divine and then do things to earn God's favor. Religion says, I want to be in control. I want to choose when I come to God. But the human ego gets in the way of God's plan and it seeks some reason, some merit to commend ourselves to him But the opposite is true because, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that I or any of you are not smarter or more holy or more special than anyone else that has come to Christ. There's nothing special about us because the Bible says we were spiritually reborn not as a result of anything in the realm of nature or even through our personal decision, but solely on account of God's sovereign prerogative. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And it's pretty humbling. You see, simply put, God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And even more wonderful, God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. Nothing you can do to make him love you any less. You can't persuade God to love you more because his love is absolute. And although he hates sin, he loves sinners so absolutely that the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. That's amazing love, right? But we already knew that because the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, verse 8, that God is love. God is love. And love is the very essence of God. It's not just that God feels love or does loving things, although he does. It is his very nature. Love doesn't exist apart from God. And it's hard to imagine love like that, isn't it? In fact, the Apostle Paul prayed that his readers and followers would get just a glimpse of it. Just a glimpse of it. He said in Ephesians 3.17, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. That you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. And then he concludes by saying, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You know, Jesus did more than just die for us. John says that God sent his son so that we could live. God sent his one and only son into the world that we could live through him, and he confirmed that promise as Jesus rose from the dead, to offer us not only forgiveness of our sins, but the gift of eternal life. In fact, Jesus himself said, and I want us to read it together in John 3, 16 and 17. You probably know it by heart, but let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, this is so much more than just a heartwarming manger story we hear at Christmas. Because John reminds us that the baby that Mary wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger on that first Christmas came with the express purpose of expressing God's sacrificial love. For me. For you. I know Brother Ray will agree with me on this, but he and I think quite a lot of the Apostle John. In fact, I think he's probably my favorite author in the New Testament. And the reason is I really love how John explains the nature of God's love in his writing, not just as an idea, but as a concrete reality. Because, you know, for him, Jesus' love was real. And even though the Gospel of John doesn't present a birth narrative of Jesus, he captures the essence of that love that brought him to the manger. Because, you see, the Apostle John didn't just know Jesus spiritually, he knew him personally. He was there, he was right there firsthand to experience the love of our Savior. And I love how he writes it in 1 John 1. He said, that which was from the beginning, meaning Jesus, which we have heard, we've heard him, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, when John tells us about the love of God that said Jesus to be born at Christmas, he really knew what he was talking about. He heard Jesus personally. He'd seen Jesus with his own eyes. He touched Jesus' body. He touched him. And even more amazing, Jesus had touched him. And he says, when I tell you what his love is like, you can believe me because I've experienced it. And it's like nothing you've ever known. Because the love of God can be difficult to get a handle on, can it? His kind of infinite, selfless love is difficult to comprehend because you and I don't love like that, do we? Our sinful flesh is apt to want to be resentful and hold grudges. We're apt to hurt those people that are closest to us as well as strangers because regardless of how you and I present ourselves when we show up for church every week and we put on our perfect Christian masks, we're all still sinful men and women, aren't we? And showing love to other people that we don't know or worse yet, showing love to people that we don't like is really tough. John is telling us that God's love is different. And the story of Christmas is one of conscious dedicated, sacrificial, selfless love in Jesus Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice for willful sinners. That's the story. That's the impact of Christmas. That's God's gift of love to us this Advent. The love of God and his determination, his desire and his intentionality in sending us Jesus Christ to buy us back from the penalty of sin. But, you know, unfortunately, that aspect of God's love is pretty easily lost this time of year, isn't it? In all the hubbub of the season, we get busy with the, the trappings and the activities of the holiday. And we lose sight of the fact that our celebration of Jesus' birth is given its eternal meaning only because of his death on the cross. But that gets quickly lost as we run from parties to work to family get-togethers. Have you ever felt like that? Right? 
So at this time of year, probably more than any other, we need to make some quiet time with God in his word. Right? We need to just clear away the clutter of Christmas and find this book and get it not just in your hands but in your heart. And take a good look again at the love that came down to us at Christmas that night in a stable in Bethlehem. You know, a, a Lutheran scholar once wrote about this kind of love at Christmas. He said, as long as we talk of God's love and think only of the candy of our wishes, we've never yet known that love. Because the victory of God's love is on Calvary. The triumph of his love is in Christ's open tomb. The glory of his love is in all of those who now live through Christ. To know God and to prize the sacrifice that that love made is to share its power and serve in its kingdom. Because the greatest thing in the world is not anything in the world at all. It is the heavenly love of God in Christ Jesus, his son, at Christmas. I like that quote. right? Because it's not the lights or the tinsel or the decorations. And you know, it's not even the acts of charity that we do this time of year. You know, even the unbelieving world puts a little bigger emphasis on giving and sharing and helping other people in the days leading up to Christmas. And we usually do a little bit more of it ourselves, don't we? Around this time of year. Now, hopefully our reason for doing that and showing love to others is motivated by genuine appreciation for the love that God has given to us. But the downside is if all we're doing for our fellow man is giving gifts and food and a friendly visitor volunteering our time, we're not really loving other people with the fullest and truest kind of love. In fact, one theologian put it like this. He said, is the height of lovelessness to let men's souls go on to destruction while we provide a thousand charities for their bodies. Why don't you think about that? It is the height of lovelessness to let men's souls go on to destruction while we provide a thousand charities for their bodies. That'll make you think. Because if we share our food and our money and our clothing and our time, and we don't share the true meaning of the love of Christmas, we aren't really showing true love, are we? If we help the less fortunate or when we have opportunities to do good to others but don't share the love of Christ, we're not loving our neighbor with the love that loved us enough to give up everything, even his life, that we would be saved. The Apostle John talks about that too. He says, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Because you see, the natural response to this great saving gift at Christmas of God's love in Christ, is to share and to show that love with other people. With everyone we come in contact with. Now, you might have expected him to say, since God so loved us, we ought to love him. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? Since God so loved us, we ought to love him. Instead, we're told, we ought to also love one another. We ought to also love one another. And the best way to express our love for God And the way he most wants us to express our love for him is to show our love for our neighbor, not just believers, but all those that God places in our path by sharing with them the love of the gospel and giving it to people who so desperately need to hear the good news this Christmas season. You know, I mentioned that we're going to the nursing home this afternoon when we went last week. We were singing Christmas carols with the folks there, and we sang the last stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I don't think that I've ever heard it before. I don't think I've ever heard it sung or seen it in print. But it's a great summary of the ideas that we've been talking about, and I want to share it with you. It says, Come, desire of nations, come. 
Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but it really sums up what we're talking about. The true message of Christmas. Because it's not in the presence we give one another, but it is in our presentation of the gospel to a needy world. Sharing the true meaning of God's gift of love in his son Jesus Christ. God's gift to us in the simple, humble wrappings of a dirty manger in a little-known town in Bethlehem. God's great gift of love to you and I at Christmas and always. Amen? Let's pray together. God of love, you are, are truly our heart's desire this season. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to praise and exalt you today for your gift of love in Jesus. And Father, in this time of preparation for the celebration of Christmas, we ask you to help us keep our focus on you, Lord, and on your incredible gift while we're caught up in the busyness of the season. So help us, Father, to keep Jesus in the center of all we do, and help us especially, Lord, to carve out time to pray and to reflect on your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.